This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Mirko Draca, who is a professor of economics at the University of Warwick. Today we're going to talk about his paper on target sanctions and the economic interest of elite policymakers in Iran, which is joined with Jason Garrett, Leanne Stickland, and Nele Barinier, and is forthcoming in the Economic Journal. Mirko, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Jordi. So I wanted to talk about this paper because it feels like incredibly relevant given the war in Ukraine and the efforts uh, by the West to influence the Russian decision-making using economic sanctions. You focus here in this paper on economic sanctions that were imposed on Iran as a result of its efforts to develop a nuclear program. Can you start by telling us what is the main question in this paper? That is, we can go later into how you answer the question, but first of all, what is the question that you pose? Okay, so what we look at specifically in this paper is we try and sort of look at whether there was like a tangible incentive for elite interests, for elite policymakers in Iran to make moves, take steps to lift sanctions, right? So we want to look at the idea that we can track the economic interests of these, these policymakers through the, the Tehran Stock Exchange, through the stock market, and look at, you know, as sanctions news evolved, as information about the potential lifting of sanctions evolved, did that translate into clear um, shifts in market value uh, for firms affiliated with these policymakers? So the distinctive contribution of the paper relative to the rest of the literature would be, like, we tend to think about the costs imposed by sanctions, right? The GDP loss of sanctions or loss of revenue from, let's say, kind of uh, sales of oil, Um, what we're looking at in contrast in this paper is at the idea of whether a carrot existed for the lifting of sanctions and therefore a specific incentive that was you know, hitting the elites existed. So you mentioned in the, at the beginning of the paper that a lot of the literature on sanctions, not necessarily by economists, but they are more like, if you want qualitative or, you know, not so serious quantitative studies looking at episodes in which sanctions were introduced and then some type of like evaluation afterwards over on whether they worked or not. Here, you're not looking at whether these sanctions actually change their behavior, but if you want like a necessary precondition for the actual changing of the behavior, which is was there an economic incentive yep. for these actors to change their behavior, you know? So it is not maybe sufficient, but it's like a, like a building block along, you know, the type of broader question that we will have in mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're right. So the, you know, most of the existing literature, which was sort of, it kind of built up from this pulse of literature in the 1990s was kind of cross-country research on sanctions effectiveness, where you've got a data set of different countries and some sort of variable measuring their policy position and seeing if they the policy position changed, right? In our case, we we wanted to address sort of like overall knowledge about targeting, right? That you know, the idea about targeted sanctions has been in the air for a very long time. 
every time we have some sort of big foreign policy episode where there's some sort of clear conflict between countries, we think about targeting. We think we thought that there needed to be sort of more information fleshed out about targeting, specifically you know, about specific magnitudes or, or specific variables. And as you said, the distinctive aspect of this paper is that we're trying to measure this incentive, right, in, in relation to the interests. So let me give you an, an example of another type of sanction, not economic, but, but a different type, which will be like a travel bans, okay, or, or like visa bans. So for instance, the Magnitsky Act, uh, which targets individuals in, you know, mostly Russia, or at least initially Russia, one of the clauses that it has is that these individuals are forbidden from, say, entering the U.S., you know? For that type of sanction, we wouldn't need your type of study because if we say that a certain person cannot enter our country, obviously we are targeting that person correctly, right? Like we can presume that the sanction will be narrowly applied to that person. But broadly with economic type of sanctions, we don't know exactly whether the effect was narrowed on a particular person or a set of individuals or it applied more broadly to the rest of the economy. Hence, is why we need your paper. Exactly. So it's like, okay, so in that case of the travel ban, yes, you can measure that, right, like directly and it's observable. What we measure in our paper would be the effect on the kind of the market interests of that individual as measured in the stock market. So the stuff that we can publicly observe through the stock market, you know, the value of elite assets, you know, through through that channel, right? And so, so therefore, and as you say, what we're getting here in the case of this particular paper is the impact of the total sanctions package across all of the different sanctions in the uranium case of the specifically targeted sanctions elements plus the oil sanctions plus the SWIFT sanctions, how that translates into this differential effect on the stock market in Iran, the Tehran Stock Exchange. So you mentioned at some point publicly observable. We are going to go in too detail in a second, but you, you are going to be using like the, you know, the stock market valuation of the company that these people control. And obviously this is the very best that you can do, but also the very best that I can think that anybody could do. But one challenge that arises with this type of people is that they may not care so much about the monetary value of their investments. You know, if we take a Russian oligarchs, I presume that these oligarchs are really interested in living a very good life with their yachts in Monaco. So targeting them economically is going to maybe have an effect. But some of the actors here in the Iranian regime, well, they are like religious people. Maybe they don't care so much about material things, you know? And in the utility function, it doesn't matter whether they make more or less money or whether they lose billions or not, because they have other type of objectives. And of course, that's going to be a limitation of your study of any type of study that looks at these public observable things. Yeah, well, I'd say to that, or if, if it was the case that, okay, these elite interests could completely evade the effects of sanctions. So there's like the issue of circumvention, right? If they were able to fully circumvent 
sanctions and, you know, the market knew it, right, then we wouldn't see any shift in the value of these firms, right? So if the sanctions weren't so important to kind of the economic interests as manifest in the stock market, then the actors on the stock market would just shrug off uh, like the sanctions or wouldn't react to sanctions news, right? So that's one thing. And, you know, given that we see that, so in the paper, we do see a reaction of the market to market news, right? So, it, you know, these sanctions or this, you know, this sort of variation in the incentive is affecting market value, right? Then in terms of the stuff we don't observe, all we need is some correlation between the publicly observed assets and the private assets to sort of still make the sanctions substantially relevant, right? So as long as there's a correlation between what we're observing and like the big store, you know, frankly, big store of private assets that we're not observing, you know, our, our paper is still giving us some tangibly important information. And then on the second point I think you made there about the, the utility function is pretty interesting, right? It's like, whether, you know, if they've got some sort of re religious or personal commitment to the regime. Yes, what, what I meant to say here is that, say, Ali Khamenei, mm -hmm. which is a Iranian supreme leader, he may not be very motivated by the value of his assets. He may be motivated by other things. I don't know, like religious preferences of some type or something that imply that the change in his economic incentives are not really going to change his behavior, you know? But of course, the, I don't mean this as a limitation. Sure. You are still doing the best that, that you can do. Then whatever these people have in the utility function is difficult to observe. Yeah, of course. As you said, it's like, we, you know, if we want to build up like a good body of evidence to design sanctions policy, we need all of these elements. So, so we need this notion of elite economic interests and how elite economic interests are, are, are affected. You know, then, then we need notions about regime stability, about ego rents. Now, I think that's particularly important in, in the Russian case that we're seeing now because it just seems like Putin's regime is particularly resilient, politically resilient, like to, to these economic shocks um, in ways that we just don't, haven't been able to systematically understand. Like how can you hit an economy with so many economic and military shocks and it just seems like internal stability is not affected. But that's, that's another topic of future research. So you talk about these economic actors or, or economic decision makers in the Iranian regime. Who are they specifically? Who are the two types of actors that, uh, whose assets you focus on? So in the context of the paper, we, we focus on two areas, as you discussed, the supreme leader, right? So a characteristic of the, the supreme leader is that there has been sort of verified like set of economic interests, the conglomerate of economic interests identified with the supreme leader that we're able to trace into the stock market. And this is something that was established by the US in its sanctions documents, right, in the Office of Financial and Asset Control, right? So there's a definite sort of set of economic interests affiliated with the supreme leader. The way that that's thought of in the context of Iranian political economy is that the supreme leader kind of, as you say, it's like, you know, he may have particular kind of theocratic commitments, like in terms of like he's motivated by kind of religious or theocratic goals, but politically, strategically, he built up, he's built up a set of economic interests 
you know, both for consumption value and for, you know, supporting his own position, right? So the fact that he's got like these, you know, billions of economic interests, that sort of assists him in terms of uh, securing political power, right? So there's that, there's that element of even if he has a strong religious commitment or a in-principle commitment, um, he still needs these economic interests to sort of support him politically, right? The second main group that we sort of focus on here is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, okay? So this is not the military, but rather specific sort of the the operational vanguard of the revolution, right? So it's in parallel to the military, the Iranian military. It looks a lot like the uh, Iranian military. I guess it would be like an SS-type organization in the context of kind of World War II Germany. Like that would be the closest analog I could see. And again, they also have strong economic interests, many rooted within the defence industries, uh, rooted within the resource industries, right? So for an autocratic or authoritarian regime uh, like Iran to operate, you need to have a lot of actors who are bought into the overall regime, right? And so this is something we see across authoritarian countries is like these elite groups, you know, they've got strong economic interests or kind of strong economic investments, both for personal consumption reasons of being rich and also to kind of maintain power and maintain regime stability, right? Um, So those are the two groups we look at. And some of these economic interests, which are obviously the ones that you focus on, are traded in the uh, Tehran Stock Exchange, Can you tell a bit more about how you identified what of the companies that trade in the uh, TSE are affiliated with these groups? You already mentioned a little bit about that, but can you go more into detail about how you identify if you want what is going to be the treatment group in the type of strategies that you're going to undertake? Sure. So what we do there is we kind of take the information from the Tehran Stock Exchange, okay, and we sort of triangulate the ownership information from the Tehran Stock Exchange. So we went through this information in Persian and translated it and built up our own big chart of the ownership structure of the of the Tehran Stock Exchange. And we triangulated that, that is kind of mapped it to the OFAC, the Office of Financial and Assets Control in the US, their sanctions lists of the targeted, the designated firms, right? And you know, we 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 and then we trace that through the different layers of the Tehran Stock Exchange to to get an idea of like all of the firms affiliated with the main sorts of you know uh, principal elements of the business groups. Obviously, these companies, because they are trading publicly, they are going to be only partially owned by these economic actors. So there may be some other companies that are wholly owned and are unlisted. These ones you cannot do your study on. But as you said, is there is some type of correlation between the listed and the unlisted, you know, we can extrapolate. Yeah, exactly. So in the paper, like in the context of the stock market, we've got sort of the direct targeted firms, like and the, the less direct firms who were sort of strongly linked to the, so there's essentially like three types of firms. There's like the directly targeted, the indirectly targeted, you know, so directly targeted on the stock exchange, indirectly targeted on the stock exchange, 
And then there's this whole set of private, what we, we would think of in the West as privately listed firms of privately listed economic interests, right? That we can't pick up, right? As you say, there, you know, the usefulness of our study comes from the fact that we're still picking up a big fraction of kind of Iranian private wealth. And secondly, as, as we've said, it's like, you know, it's still going to be correlated. What's happening in that privately listed sector is still going to be correlated with what's happening in the public's publicly listed sector. Can you tell us now a bit about what are the shocks that take place over time whose effect on the valuation of these firms that are owned by Khamenei and the Iranian Revolutionary Corps uh, or not owned are? Like, tell us a little bit about the timeline of the negotiations for the removal of the sanctions. Yeah, sure. So the big kind of problem with any sort of stock market event study is market anticipation, right? So these actors on the market, they're looking for news all the time. They're looking to act on particular bits of news all the time to gain some sort of kind of market advantage, right? So what we're relying on here is unexpected news about the progress of negotiations, right? Or just in general news about the progress of negotiations, but particularly sort of surprising information, right? So the central kind of element of this that we use in the paper is the first big initial breakthrough deal achieved in Geneva in late November 2013, right? In that case, like that was, you, know, you can make an argument that was the biggest sort of breakthrough in Iranian and Western relations and particularly US relations since 9-11 and possibly since like the revolution in 1979, right? And so, and as we document in the paper, there was a lot of skepticism about whether this was going to be feasible, right? Whether this would come through, right? And in the particular case of like, that we're dealing with in the paper is that, you know, this breakthrough was really well-timed, right? So um, the Iranian weekend is on the Thursday and the Friday, okay? The deal was, and markets reopened on the Saturday, right? So we have this setting where, you know, there's some speculation on the Wednesday before markets close that there could be a deal, but it really starts to build up over the Thursday and the Friday when markets are closed. And just before markets open, that's when the news of the deal is, is announced. And then that immediately hits the stock market, right? So we're able to use what we think of as a pretty clean uh, shift in news, like about the probability of a, of a deal or the probability of sanctions being lifted. Right. And so that's the first big element that we use. Let me just be clear about this. The Iranian Stock Exchange closed on a Wednesday afternoon and then there were negotiations on Thursday, but the expectation was that these negotiations will not be very successful. It turns out that they are being successful. That was revealed on Friday evening, but the market couldn't react yet because the market was closed. And then the market opened on Saturday. And then essentially what you are doing is like an event study of how the market reacted to this news as it opened on Saturday relative to how it had closed a couple of days earlier. Exactly. So, so, so the way we think of it would be there was this work um, by Justin Walters and co-authors about the 2004 US election, right, where they're using betting market odds such that you've got an explicit probability that, I think that was you know, whether Kerry or Bush would win in 04, right? 
And so there, because they've got this explicit market probability and you had sort of these kind of, it was expected that Kerry would win. I remember that that election, um, you know, it didn't pan out that way. It was a surprise. So we're sort of inspired a bit by that case. However, we don't have that sort of high frequency information about the, the probability of a deal being reached and the, prob- the probability of sanctions being lifted. So we, you know, we're trying to get the next best thing to that where you've got a certain level of expectations or a certain prior probability of a deal being reached on the Wednesday and then you have this accumulation of information over two days. And the soonest that the markets can react is on, you know, and it's, it's, we document it in the paper. It's like very, you know, it's quite exquisitely timed that, you know, I think it was only a couple of hours before markets opened that, the, 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 you know, due to the different time zones between Geneva and Tehran, that the, the kind of markets opened with this news, right? So we're trying to kind of use that idea of sort of new information being released out into the market, which leads to a revision of probabilities by, by actors in the market. So in that paper that you are mentioning, they actually have a lot of presidential elections. And if I remember well, the better analogy to your paper here will be Truman. Truman was like really, really unexpected. The election of Truman was very unexpected and that created an enormous shock that they can use together with the rest of the of the sample to estimate the effect of electing a Republican over a Democrat and so on. Here with, with Geneva, what you're finding is your Truman. You know, you don't know exactly what the change in the livelihood was, but something that you can say was created a big shock. Exactly. What type of regression do you run on this Geneva shock? Okay, so it would be a standard of what we would think of as a difference in difference model. Like, so, you know, in the paper, so there's there's particular ways that you can run a stock market event study as a, like a, a applied finance person would run it. We we run it more like a, at how labor economists would run it and then do the finance version in the appendix somewhere, right? But we're just running a simple regression with sort of firm returns, like the change in the, the firm stock price on the left-hand side, and then the usual difference in difference elements of a linear time effect and then a dummy variable for, you know, the treatment group, which is in this case, the the group of elite firms. Okay. And then we're just looking at this kind of three-day period around the the Geneva deal to, uh, to get that difference in difference, right? So, where we're just, you know, we show it in the paper, we compare stock market movements. De facto, we're comparing movements for this elite group of our target firms versus all other firms on the market. And then we cut by different types of potential comparison group firms, right? Generally getting the same sort of results as we vary the different types of comparison groups. So it's as simple as you can get in terms of the difference and difference model over a particular window. So you have a, a panel data set of firms and days that you take like 60 days before the days of the Geneva negotiations. So you follow every firm, the share price of every firm on every day. As you said, you have like a fixed effects for the individual firms. You have the Geneva day dummies, which will be like the post dummy in a difference in difference uh, framework. And then you have the interaction between the post Geneva days and the treated firms which are the firms that are linked to these two types of actors, Khamenei and the revolutionary corps. Now, one thing, however, that is different in this type of regression relative to the standard difference in different regression is that you are also interested uh, in the effect of the post-dummy, or here you are also uh, interested in the effect of the Geneva negotiations 
on the firms that were not necessarily targeted by the sanctions, or at least not most targeted by the sanctions. Why are you interested in, in that coefficient? Okay, so that's that's a great question because that sort of really gets at the heart of like what's sort of novel about what, what we find, right? So you know, we've got that, that time effect of the general impact of the Geneva deal across the market, right? And so that's giving us sort of the benefit across all different firms in the market um, uh, of the Geneva deal in terms of market expectations of the future value of those firms, right? So that's just this this general lift in the Iranian economy across all types of firms, right? Whereas our kind of target times Geneva, our interaction terms, is getting at the additional lift that accrues to the elite firms, right? The the differential benefit that they get from the potential lifting of sanctions. And that sort of gets to the heart of the paper as we discussed before. The idea is to sort of get at the fact that there was a specific incentive um, for the elites uh, and a specific differential incentive for the elites um, to perhaps make actions, make moves to contribute towards the lifting of sanctions, right? And we get that from the fact that they, you know, the average elite firm benefits more from the lifting of sanctions from the average non-elite firm, right? And so we're getting it at firstly at that incentive, right? And then secondly, we're getting this sort of overall conclusion about the net impact of the sanctions package on publicly listed firms, right? So there's all of these different policy instruments that were used in the Iranian case from like firm-specific targeted sanctions, both operational and financial sanctions, oil sanctions, SWIFT sanctions, and so on, right? And, you know, from this setting that we have in the stock market, you know, we're not able to specifically identify the impacts of those particular sanctions, but we're able to get an idea of the overall instance of impacts um, for the overall sanctions package. So in the regression that I just described earlier, you find that the coefficient for the Geneva negotiation post-dummy is positive, which means that the non-connected average Iranian firm benefits from the increasing expectation about the removal of the sanctions, and then that the interaction is also positive, which means that the average firm linked to the regime actors benefits even more. And you are saying we interpret this as when these sanctions were affecting all Iranian firms, but they were affecting even more firms linked to the regime. Exactly. Okay, so that is the the first type of empirical strategy that you have in the paper. What is the second type using the the, the news coverage? So the, the second bit of you know second strategy that we have in the paper sort of plays on the same sort of idea as the first, right? In this case, we're sort of looking at ongoing news shocks related to diplomatic progress over the lifting of sanctions, right? So the Geneva deal was a big breakthrough, but there was this kind of long process over the next couple of years towards like the, the final sanctions deal that was reached, right? And that went through different sorts of rounds and was subject to different bits of news information. So What we do there is we get information on news coverage of sanctions from the Factiva and GDELT databases, which are two big databases of news, effectively news articles, right? In the case of GDELT, they do some natural language classification of of articles, but just in general, we were looking at tracking information on the quantity of news coverage related to sanctions negotiations, like from the Factiva and GDELT databases, okay? 
And from that, we're able to run a regression over a long period of time where it's based on the same sort of principles as the difference and difference regression, where we've got some interaction between target or elite group and the continuous or discretized news coverage um, variable. And we're able to test for this sort of systematic extra sensitivity of these elite targeted firms to like new information about um, sanctions related negotiations, right? And we're able to do that both in terms of like a continuous variable measuring like the number of articles, like as it as it varies from low values to medium values to high values. And then we're also able to focus on sort of just the very big peaks in news coverage, the, the stuff that you could plausibly think about as shocks, right? And, you know, what we do in the paper is this kind of set of operations where we've got the continuous measures, then we discretize the measures by picking up the really big shocks and, and we kind of like put those in a separate specification. And then we also show that these big shocks are meaningful, right? So out of this kind of um, purely data-driven information about like what was happening with respect to sanctions coverage, if you pick out the big peaks in news coverage, they obviously line up. If you just crack open the articles, they line up with uh, tangibly important events, right? So it's essentially like an expansion of the Geneva type strategy across lots and lots of different events. So you're saying an expansion, which means that we still have like a panel data set of firms and days over a much bigger horizon. It's, it's going to be years now. And now there's going to be an independent variable that is, you know, in one way or another, more or less sophisticated, but how much do newspapers around the world talk about Iran and negotiations and sanctions and nuclear or some combination of these things. And that is going to be a characteristic that changes at the day level. It's going to be a continuous method. You can discretize it afterwards or not, but that's going to change over, uh, over, over time, different one for every day. And then you are interacting this with, again, the dummy variable for whether that firm is controlled by one of these regime actors. Uh, and then the coefficient of the interaction is kind of what is giving you the differential effect. Now, one thing, one assumption that is implicit here is that news coverage is positive news about the removal of the sanctions, right? Like it could be that there is a lot of news about the negotiations because there were big expectations about the negotiations and they are failing, right? So this is a, an assumption. I mean, that you can, of course, afterwards validate empirically or not. As, as you are saying, you can go and check, well, on the days on which there was the highest amount of coverage, can I subjectively conclude that this was good news for the removal, correct? Yeah, exactly. So that's we, we do that in part in the paper. So you know, with the continuous measure, as you say, that's going to, you can think of that as measurement error, right? So like, you know, lots of articles doesn't necessarily mean, mean good news that will result in positive movements in the market, right? So that's, you've got measurement error there in the continuous measure. You can still have measurement error if you go to a discretized measure, which focuses on the big shocks. And then, you know, in the, in the final step, what you can do is like once you have that set of discretized shocks, you can crack open the dates and look at like the articles around those dates and classify those dates according to positive and negative news. And so, so what we show in the, in the paper is as you move across these different levels of stringency or different kind of classifications of that, this news information, you know, you see the pattern that you would expect, which is as you get towards bigger news events that are more related to positive information about sanctions, 
then you know the estimated coefficient starts to go up, right? So I have a, a couple of questions here about um, magnitudes, uh, if, if you want. So the the first one, I mean, it's just like a a repetition of something that we have touched upon earlier, which is that you have the the news variable, but you don't, unlike in the case of a Wolfers, a Tsitsebits, and another call for, which I forgot now, you don't know how this translates into the odds of a successful negotiation, right? So it is, you know, in an ideal world, we would want to know how much moving from having the sanctions to not having the sanctions affects the value of these companies. But what you have is news for which we don't really know what the implied probabilities are. So we cannot easily make uh, this type of uh, comparison, which will be the type of ideal economic magnitude that you will want. Yeah, there's a there's a few. This is like something that you know came up in the writing of the paper. So there's a kind of a number of ways. You're exactly right. That, you know what we would ideally have is some kind of ex, you know explicit probabilities that we can track, right? The way we thought about this is you can do it in a, a number of different ways. Like we want to think, you know, like how economically coherent um, is like what we're picking up, how economically coherent is it and, and like how economically important it is and is it realistic, right? So that's, I guess, what we mean by, what I mean by coherence. So we do a number of different comparisons um, in the paper. So, you know, we can, firstly, we establish that the movement that we see is like a, a big movement for the market. Like in terms of the day-to-day kind of variations in the market, it's in the upper end of the tail. So it's a, it's a big movement, right? So the sorts of effects that we see Kind of one to two percent, you know, uh, you know, in the aggregate market, if you know, if you've got investments in the FTSE in the UK, like one to two percent is a is a big day, right? So we do do it in terms of where it sits in the distribution returns, and then secondly, we compare it to sort of um, how shifts in oil, like the sorts of shifts you get in the market due to oil prices, right? So how the kind of big shifts in oil prices, which we know are important to the Iranian economy, how do they shift the market? Okay, so the comparison is between sort of a big macro shock like oil prices versus a, a similarly big macro shock like um, sanctions. And then also buried in a footnote, you know, we do like a back of the envelope calculation based on the probability. And sort of, you know, if you make some assumptions about like the, the probability going into a, an event like Geneva versus, you know, what, it, you know, some level of probability afterwards, you know, we, we put some bounds on it, right? So I think this is an interesting case in terms of empirical work of like when you lack some information, there's still like, you know, very useful things that you can do to set up bounds, right? And, you know, I think we've discussed this before, you know, when doing research, Geordie, you know, I discuss it with lots of people. I would rather see, like, rather than seeing some sort of like crappy instrument or instrument that I'm not happy with, I would rather see like a, a good set of bounds on the biases, right? So I think there's, you know, a you know, lot to be said for that in empirical work, right? Of like, you know, you cannot get the perfect instrument or the perfect variable to measure your magnitudes, but there are these exercises that we can do that can kind of rule out certain scenarios or in this case, just establish the realism or the plausibility of particular scenarios. What is the third piece of empirical evidence that you use in the paper? This is now about the potential reintroduction of the sanctions rather than the removal of the sanctions. Yeah, so, so the interesting thing is, 
you know, most of the paper is, you know, revolves around news about the lifting of sanctions, right? But the case of kind of Donald Trump being elected in 2016 kind of gives like a symmetric movement the other way in terms of, you know, his stated sort of antipathy towards the Iran deal. He didn't like the Iran deal. So, you know, what we see in the case of Trump being elected in 2016, which also occurred in a way that was timed that coincided with the opening of the uh, Tehran Stock Exchange after a couple of days off, is essentially a mirror image of, of the Geneva deal, right? Of this kind of big shift in expectations about the sanctions environment for Iran um, going into the future, and therefore this strong market reaction, right? And in the paper, we we sort of document document that quantitatively, and you know we find that it kind of lines up as you know something very similar, a symmetric opposite response to to what we see in the case of Geneva. So same type of regression, panel data or firms and days. Now the shock at the day level is the unexpected election of Donald Trump as president of the U.S., who was opposed to the removal of sanctions, and again the interaction between target firm and that time shock. And there you find that the coefficient is negative rather than positive. Exactly, exactly. So I was wondering now whether you could comment on what the stated aim of the sanction was. Because a lot of the paper is on whether these sanctions were targeting disproportionately the economic interests of these uh, elite actors and whether this pain was you know, perhaps not as narrowly targeted as the objective was, and therefore it was extending to other Iranian firms. But I presume that there is no document in which some American official wrote something along the lines of, we are going after the firms of Ali Khamenei because if his stock portfolio goes down and he cannot save for retirement, he will have to come and negotiate with us. Now, if this document existed, and the American official did not add any other objectives, I can see how it is important to evaluate whether Ali Khamenei was narrowly targeted. But if that is not the case, it is possible that these sanctions had several objectives. One of them was, of course, to target Khamenei, but maybe the other one was just in general to make Iran poorer, just in general, to put pressure on the regime or to incite some type of revolution or whatever that will maybe lead to a different type of negotiating partner through the regime change or some type of pressure. Another way of saying this is that maybe the blandness that you find in that other Iranian firms are also affected was a feature and not a bug of the sanction regime. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so you're right in saying that there's no... So the way I see it is that you know, there's some episode, some episode of international conflict between countries starts, okay, and it starts with rhetoric about targeted sanctions, and we don't we we want to harm the bad guys and not harm the good guys, right? And you know, we start off with that rhetoric, and steadily, you know, sanctions are introduced, kind of more sanction, you know, sanctions are increased, and we sort of kind of continue sticking to that rhetoric. But there's some point beyond which, like, as you increase the sanctions, you know, you're increasing the sanctions in such a way that, you know, the instruments that that you're using are much more blunt and are more likely to have these impacts on the sections of society that you don't want to impact. And it's that point that I think kind of policymakers start to lose track, right? So they're focused on increasing pressure 
they're less observant of, of the impacts and the distributional impacts, right? And so I think it, it is a case of like, it starts to become a feature rather than a bug, as you say, but it's it's not necessarily, it's not a fully conscious decision within the policymaking establishment that, that they're going to do that, right? They just, there's this, you know, feeling of a need to increase pressure. What is the next step to increase pressure? Um, you know, as we're proceeding across these steps to increase pressure, we're not necessarily looking at like measuring the distributional impact of every step, right? And that's where you may, might take some sort of wrong turn in terms of bluntness, where you have this big increase in bluntness, which sort of, you know, you reach, reach some sort of tipping point where it moves from being sort of a reasonably well-distributed impact with like relatively strong impacts on elites and, and to the point where you're getting kind of really uneven impacts, which are starting to hit um, the non-elites proportionally more. Sure. I have another question in terms of the, the aims of the sanctions. So throughout the paper, the interpretation that you give to the sanctions trying to narrowly target the economic interests of, of Khamenei and the, the Revolutionary Guards are from like a negotiation perspective. So the idea that, that you have in mind mostly is that if Ali Khamenei loses money because his companies become less profitable, he's more likely to be inclined to negotiate a post to the nuclear program in exchange for the sanctions being removed. But my understanding from following the debate about the sanctions on Russia is that this is not necessarily the only objective of the sanctions on, on Russian companies. An additional objective, again, in the case of Russia, is to cripple the ability of Russia to conduct its war effort. For instance, if we target a company that makes tanks, then Russia is going to have less tanks to be able to invade Ukraine with, you know? Is it possible that Khamenei is using these companies to develop, to help develop Iran's nuclear program and that the objective of the sanctions is simply to take out from him the tools to follow, you know, this objective effectively? So this interpretation wouldn't mean that your regressions are wrong or even that you're not identifying some successful targeting, but simply it's a different interpretation about what these American actors were trying to achieve. Okay, so so there is a small set of firms that we, I think we, we exclude them in most cases, which are actually like firms directly involved in helping to build nuclear facilities, so mining firms, right? So we can, to some extent, we can identify those firms that are directly related to the nuclear program, right? And, and they, they get hit by sanctions. And they don't overlap with like the Supreme Leaders conglomerate, right? That's a kind of separate, separate group of firms. And then in general, in terms of, okay, so Iran's capacity. So, you know, by hitting the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, you know, you know, the sanctions are necessarily hitting Iran's overall capacity to threaten international security. Is that, is that what you mean in this case, Jordi? So companies that are involved in mining, that will be the analogy of, of Russian companies that make tanks. So you take them out, but I, I, I don't know that we, from our desks, you know, in Britain, can identify 
every single ingredient of these nuclear programs, you know, because it could be that there are firms that are also valuable in an indirect way, but it's difficult for us to know from sitting here, for the econometrician to know. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, to the extent to which to which defence production overlaps with IRGC ownership in, in Iran, then you're, you're getting at, like, Iranian military production, right? So kind of like a big area where the IRGC gets its sort of elite benefits is from these economic interests related to defence production. So um, so that element, that element is tied up within the overall kind of political economy of Iran, right? So just to, you know, think about what to take uh, from the paper, I'm trying to think about this paper in terms of going forward. So imagine that there is, you know, in the international arena, a country that invades another country or does something wrong. We don't want to get into a war with them, but we want to somehow stop that type of behavior. What does your paper tell us about how we should think about these economic sanctions? Okay. Of course, the best case there is is Russia and the Ukraine at the moment, right? So what I think our our paper offers for the the current kind of Russia-Ukraine crisis or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it is a map for how you can evaluate a big chunk of of the economic sanctions, uh, how you can evaluate it in real time, right? So the ideal ingredients for doing this sort of real-time mapping would be a comprehensive kind of daily data or even sub-daily data from the Moscow Stock Exchange, ownership information about the conglomerates, in particular how they're related to elite, specific elite interests, and then also the sanctions information that would come from you know, the US OFAC office and other international sanctions offices, right? And with that information, you could map in these daily shifts in sanctions policy some of many of them will be anticipated, but there'll be some unanticipated elements. And probably what, what's most important is that you could just see the change in the distribution of values across um, firms on the Moscow Stock Exchange. What I'd be particularly interested in in the in the rush the current Russia-Ukraine context would be what's been the impact of the shift in energy prices and oil and gas prices on kind of the market value of firms on the Moscow Stock Exchange. Could it, you know, to what extent has the increase in energy prices offset some of the economic impacts of the sanctions? To what extent has it redistributed market value across firms on the Moscow Stock Exchange, right? Because the worry would be that a lot of kind of autocratic wealth in Russia is by necessity, you know, it is rooted in uh, natural resources. It's rooted in oil and gas. Okay, and so that's something that we could have, you know, in short order with kind of publicly available data, you know, as long as, you know, we've got the resources to do that work quickly. Right. But I see a real need for that kind of real time evaluation of essentially shifts in publicly observable wealth in Russia. Right. And our paper provides a pretty good map for how to do that, both in terms of the sort of data you'd want to assemble and then also know, the modeling strategy in terms of the sort of variation that you want to map in, right? In the case of Russia, Ukraine, I think, you know, there's fewer and unanticipated event after the initial, you know, there's a big unanticipated or somewhat surprising event of the invasion on February 24th. Um, subs, you know, subsequent to that, there's kind of less sort of surprising stuff. But to me, the, the critical thing we want to understand is the distribution of the impacts, right? And the effect of the energy prices. Wonderful, Mirko. Thank you for coming to the program. 
All right, thank you very much. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.